Well, I'm curious this morning if, you, if there has ever been a church out there that you have admired from afar. Maybe it's a church that you've watched on television, you, you, you've watched their services for year, years. Maybe it's a church that has some great traditions, some great ministry, and when you look at what they do and how they do it, you think to yourself, man, that's a really, really great church. Perhaps like me, you admire Saddleback Community Church where Rick Warren was pastor until he retired. Saddleback is known for its discipleship and what I really love about that church is they make available resources to smaller churches in order to help them grow. And churches literally all over the world have used their model and their materials for spiritual growth and they are growing too. In fact, one of the treasured resources that was birthed out of Saddleback Church is a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. We have to give five minutes to CR because they're going to hoot and holler now. I knew that would happen. <laughs> and uh, we at High Point, as well as thousands of other churches around the world, now have our own Celebrate Recovery ministry as a result. Yeah. As a result of their innovation and their leadership. Maybe you admire the world's largest church, the Full Gospel Church in Seoul, Korea founded by the late Dr. David Yonghee Cho with over 800,000 members. Every day, thousands upon thousands of its members get up at four o'clock in the morning to pray from anywhere for two to three hours. They have prayer grottos all over the property of that church where you can go in this small little place and just be alone with God. They spend time interceding for their church and for the people that they minister to before they go to work each and every day. Maybe you admire the church that, that I came from, Phoenix First Assembly, which is now called Dream City Church, where Pastor Tommy Barnett and now his son, Luke Barnett, have built an incredible church. And, and through their annual Pastors and Leaders Conference, they have inspired countless pastors and churches around the world to duplicate their programs, do the same ministries and programs that they do, and they too are experiencing growth and, and, and they have impacted their communities. I could go on and on with lists of great churches, admirable churches that operate within our day and time. But as we've been studying this book of Acts, I think we need to add another one to our list. And I'm referring to the church in Antioch. As I told you two weeks ago, this church was growing, it was ministering, it was evangelizing, it was an evangelizing church. And even though it was located in one of the most pagan cities around, Antioch, as I told you, was sort of a red light district of the world at that time, but that didn't stop the Christians who lived there because they boldly shared the love of Jesus and it worked and the church grew in, in amazing ways. Well, this week in our scripture text from Acts chapter 13 and 14, it tells us more about this church and what I have read has only increased my admiration, ad, admir, admiration, is that, excuse me, I said it wrong, for that church even more. And as we study this together for the next 45 minutes or so, I think you'll, you'll find out why. But before we do that, I also wanna point out to you that we have come to a real transition point in our study in the book of Acts. Because at this point, first, there is a change of person. And what I mean by that is its author, Luke, moves from an emphasis on Peter towards an emphasis on the Apostle Paul. In chapter 15, there is one more glimpse of Peter, but from here on out, Paul pretty much takes center stage in terms of the evangelism that is going on. Secondly, there is a change of focus. Luke records the fact that, that Christianity eventually moved from an emphasis, from an emphasis on the Jews to an emphasis toward the Gentiles. And what we see in Antioch is that the gospel was deliberately and purposefully being preached to the Gentiles there, and it is a pattern that is followed throughout the rest of the book. And, and this shift became obvious to the Jews. 
And the scriptures tell us that when they saw the large crowds of Gentiles, they began to get jealous. In fact, in their jealousy, the Jews began to heap abuse upon the apostle Paul. And in Acts 13, verses 46 and 48, you see the response. Verse 46 says, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And so Paul, who often started his new, these new churches in synagogues from here on out, he redirects his emphasis and his efforts, efforts towards the Gentiles of the world. And then thirdly, what we see is there is a change of location. Luke moves from a focus on the church in Jerusalem now to a focus on the church in Antioch. It had become an admired church. It was the church to watch. Now our text this morning is two whole chapters and we're not gonna have time to obviously read them in their entirety. I hope that when we've been going through this series, you've taken the time to read the book of Acts as we've moved along. But I do wanna read some verses this morning. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 12. Uh, we will begin with verse 25, which is the last uh, verse in that chapter. And then we will read through to Acts chapter 13, verse three. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or the scriptures will all be on the screens behind and you can, you can follow along. Acts 12, 25, be reading from the New International Version. It says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they're talking here about the offering that they, they collected at the church in Antioch in order to help the church in Jerusalem face the upcoming famine that we had talked about earlier that was in the scriptures. They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now on to Acts chapter 13. Now the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, just like when we admire other people, we tend to pattern ourselves after them and we want to be like them. Well, I believe the same thing holds true with churches that we admire. We desire to emulate those churches that we look up to. And so with this in mind, I, I wanna point out to you this morning four reasons why I admire this church in Antioch so much. And I do this with the hope that all of us here at High Point will make sure to embrace these same admirable qualities and make them our very own. And the first admirable trait that stands out to me in this church in Antioch is their diversity. And we see this reflected in their leadership or what we would call their pastoral staff. I want you to look at verse, chapter 13, verse one again. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, this is, just, this is not just another biblical list of hard-to-pronounce names. It's a roster of church leaders, and it indicates the wide uh, diversity of their backgrounds. First, you have Barnabas, who was from the island of Cyprus. Barnabas was a Levite. He was a Jewish priest. Then you have Simeon, who also had the name Niger, which was a Latin word meaning blacked skin. Do you remember when Jesus could no longer carry his cross to Golgotha? Well, many scholars have concluded or speculated that the man who was forced to carry Jesus' cross to, to, the, to Golgotha was none other than Simeon. However, in the, that book, they refer to him as Simon. 
So we don't know if this is true or not, but this is speculation. The third one mentioned is Lucius, who is from Cyrene, a a region west of Egypt on the coast of Africa. And by the way, you may remember that it was the men from Cyrene and Cyprus who first went to Antioch and began to teach the Greeks there, as it says in Acts 11.20. In other words, Lucius was a, a missionary slash church planner and was probably one of the founders of the church in Antioch. I also want you to note that Lucius is a Roman name. So he was a Gentile brought up in Roman culture. And then we have Menean, a member of high society who had grown up with Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee and Perea, who we spent time talking about last week. In fact, the Greek word in verse one that we translate as where it says, having been brought up with uh, Herod Antipas, can literally be translated as foster brother. So Manian and Herod Antipas might have not only been playmates when they were boys growing up, but they could have been members of the same family, which would have made Manian a prince. And then we have Saul the Apostle Paul, we now call him, with an impressive education and formal training under Rabbi Gamaliel. This guy was very well educated in the scriptures. So so to surmise, when you talk about diversity, this church in Antioch had a a, a wide variety of diversity in their leaders. A, A Cyprian Jew, a black man named Simeon, a Roman Gentile from Cyrene, and an aristocratic prince and a highly educated rabbi. That is diversity, folks. And because of the great diversity in the leadership of that church, this same diversity was reflected in the overall makeup of the church. And I admire this about the church in Antioch because that's what every church should be like. We should be a small picture of the entire body of Christ, whereas Paul puts it, In Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those Christians in Antioch, I believe, understood the lesson that Peter learned in his encounter with Cornelius, where it says in Acts 10.34 in the King James Version, God is no respecter of persons. You know, every year we have to fill out an annual report for the Assemblies of God. And in the report, we provide details like how many people have received salvation, how many have been baptized in water, how many have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the physical evidence of speaking in tongues, as well as our average Sunday attendance, among a whole bunch of other questions that we have to answer. And we do our best to track these items, although some are harder to track than others. But there's also another part of that report that we have to, where we have to designate percentages of Anglo, African-American, Hispanic, and Asian adherents. And I know they have a good reason for this part of the form because they want to see if our churches in fact do have diversity, but when you boil it all down, I think the question should be, are you a biblical church like the one in Antioch? Because this would also indicate that you as a church reach out to all races and all ethnic groups. I mean, believe me, I understand why you would have a Korean church or a Hispanic church in the beginning to reach out to people who speak those different languages. But I believe eventually the church must mature to the point that it reaches out to all people groups. And the diversity within a church should be a mirrored image of the diversity within the community where it resides. A church must be diverse in order to truly be a biblical church. And I'm certain that the diversity in the Antioch church was one of the reasons that it grew as quickly as it did. Because with such a wide variety of different backgrounds, the church was better able to reach out to the many ethnic groups that populated the city of Antioch. I mean, the members of that church 
could go to the Jews, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to men, women, to slaves, to those who were free, and say, listen, the gospel is for all people, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, not just Greek, not free, just men, not just women, not slaves, not free. The, 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 lev- the ground is level, folks, at the foot of the cross. The gospel is for everyone, and that means they could say to them, it's for you. So let me tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ. And this leads me to the second thing that I admire about this church in Antioch. Evangelism was absolutely primary. I mean, from the very beginning, the members of this church saw evangelism as their main task. Everything they did, worship, discipleship, fellowship, all the ministry, everything evolved around this one foundational purpose. And I believe that the staff and the members of that church understood an important truth, that witnessing and leading others to faith in Jesus Christ is one of the main reasons that we walk around on this planet Earth. Personal evangelism is the reason that our hearts are still beating on this side of eternity. God keeps us here instead of taking us home to heaven so that we can tell more and more people about the love of Jesus Christ. As Rick Warren put it, and I love this quote, he said, there are only two things you can't do in heaven. One of them is sin, and the other is tell people who don't know it the good news about God's love. Now, which of those two reasons do you think you're still alive for? Pretty bold. Well, as I said, the Christians in Antioch obviously understood this principle long before Rick Warren did, because the heartbeat of that church was evangelism. It was primary. It was, it was foundational in literally everything that they did. And I say this because back in chapter 11, Luke tells us about the founding of this church, and he says that from the beginning, its members seemed to spend their every waking moment telling about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone. And because of their commitment, it says this in in Acts 11, 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And this is an accurate statement, folks, because by 325 AD, more than a fourth of the population of Antioch were Christians. That's over 200,000 people. You talk about a megachurch, this was the first one. It was a megachurch. Another example of how primary evangelism was to this church is found in Acts chapter 13. And it's how they responded to the command of the Holy Spirit by sending out two of their five pastors. And this is what verse three, this is what verse three that we read about meant when it said, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This church literally sent Barnabas and Saul over a third of their their full-time pastoral staff on the first ever church-sponsored mission trip. And this wasn't just a week-long mission trip. Paul and Barnabas were gone for an entire two years. And when they finally got back, the church sent Paul and other staff members out again and again. Would you do that? I mean, I know this church has experienced what it's, what it's like to be without a pastor for a period of time. If you've ever served on a pastoral search committee or any minister's search committee for that matter, then you know how hard it is. It can take a long time not to just find the past a pastor, but to find a pastor who you believe that God has called to your church. Well, these people believed in evangelism so much that they sacrificially sent out their pastoral staff over and again and again. And they did this knowing that the result would be more people hearing about the good news of Jesus. And I admire this church's commitment to both missions and and evangelism because it indicates that they were all truly Christ-like, Christ-minded people. In fact, their actions remind me of something that Henry Martin, who was an Anglican priest and missionary once said. He said, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we must become. 
My point is that those Christians in that church in Antioch must have walked very, very closely with Jesus for them to be so missionary-minded. And the truth is, all churches need to emulate this quality that came from the Antioch church. All Christians should take Jesus' command to take the gospel into all the world as seriously. Theologian Emil Bruner said this, the church exists by mission, just as fire exists by burning. Where there is no mission, there is no church. And where there is neither church nor mission, there is no faith. A church not concerned about missions or a Christian not involved in evangelism and missions ignores the one major task for which Christ left us in this world. Evangelism should always be primary. Well, that statement leads me to the third thing that I admire about this church in Antioch, and it was that they believed fulfilling the Great Commission was, was their personal responsibility. You see, the church was started, this church was started through person-to-person -person evangelism. And guess what? It continued to grow in that exact same way. Each of its, its members saw witnessing as their personal responsibility. And unfortunately, this kind of attitude is rare in our day and in our age. Many Christians have, have bought in to the erroneous belief that evangelism is the job of, of the senior pastor or the other church leaders. And yes, it is, but it's, it's a job for all of us. In Antioch, they understood that everyone played a part in this. So everyone witnessed to their friends, their neighbors, their, their family members, their coworkers, and their efforts bore fruit. And their friends and the people that they ministered to became Christians. And then the church discipled those new Christians. That's the way it's supposed to be. And then those who were discipled, they learned to share their faith with their friends and coworkers and so on and so on. That's how the church was built. In evangelistic circles, this is what we call the principle of multiplication. And truthfully, it is the only way that we could ever possibly fulfill the Great Commission. And allow me to show you just how powerful this principle is. If I personally were to win one person to Jesus every month for the next 10 years, that would be a total of 120 people in our community who would be saved. 12 months times 10 years equals 120 new believers in Red Bluff, California. But this is where multiplication gets really exciting. Because if 400 of us were to win one person to Jesus every month for the next 10 years, 480,000 people. That's staggering. That's more people than we have in Red Bluff. We'd have to start going to Chico. We'd have to start going to Redding. We'd have to start going down the I-5 corridor. That is staggering. Take it one step further. Let's say that there are 4,000 committed followers of Jesus Christ living in Tehama County, and that could be an accurate statement. And if every one of them were to win someone to Jesus every month for the next 10 years, 480,000 people. And that doesn't even consider that if those 480,000 that we won were getting discipled and were being taught how to share their faith with someone else and they were going out to do it, the numbers would be, folks, absolutely staggering. Can you see how that a concerted effort of personal evangelism could, could change the landscape of Red Bluff and of Tehama County and of the state of California? And let's just carry it on to the United States of America. It's called exponential growth. And it clearly shows how powerful that this principle can be. And it is how Jesus intended for it to happen. Listen, if, if even a fraction of the Christians in our city adopted this principle of personal evangelism, followed by them or their churches discipling those people where a new believer is now taught about how important it is to share their faith with other people and took the great 
commission seriously, you can see how quickly a huge amount of people in Red Bluff would come to know Jesus. And and, and our efforts in leading them to Jesus, it would have such an an enormous effect. First, they they would literally be snatched out of the hands of our enemy, praise God. They would be set free from sin. They would have the promise of spending eternal life in the presence of our God when their time on this earth was done. But there's another thing that comes from this that you don't hear people talk about that much. And I'm going to rant on it here for just a few minutes. As those numbers increase exponentially, can you see how the many social ills of our society would begin to change? Can you begin to see how our city would change. I've heard some of the worst things said about this city by some of the best people in, the, in this city. Dead bluff. This church is going down the tubes, or this, this city is going down the tubes. I don't want to live here anymore. People are saying all kinds of things. But if, if this happened, if what I'm talking about happened, there would be less drugs. There would be less abuse. There would be less apathy. There would be less crime. There would be more love. There would be more respect. There would be more safety. There would be more cooperation. So the next time you find yourself talking about how our community is unsafe and in decline, and I get that, the next time you want to talk about how you don't like the political climate or the direction that our state government is taking us, and I get that, The next time you start thinking about moving out of town, going to another state, please understand that every bit of this negativity, every bit of this decline that we see going on in our city is a derivative of sin. It's what it is. It's sin. And and the only way that that is ever going to change is when people are changed by the transforming power of Almighty God. Here's the point. Yeah, go ahead. If you can clap for that. Here's the deal. You can move somewhere safer. You can move to a state that fits your political standing much better. But let me make something very clear to you. It will only be a period of time where that place ends up just where you are right here. It will. Because we are a nation that is in decline. Our morals are gone. Kindness is almost a thing of the past. Respect is non-existent. The only way any of this junk is going to change is through a powerful move of God that lives in the heart of people. That's the only way this is going to change. If time has taught us anything, it's that people need the Lord. And until that kind of change happens, folks, there will be no change. It'll be more of the same. We'll be lamenting over the same thing over and over and over again. Government can't do it. Please get that through your head. They'll promise you the shirt off their back and give you nothing but higher taxes. That's just the way it is. Government ain't going to fix a thing. So Quit worrying about who you're voting for. Doesn't matter. They're all, I better quit. (laughs) I'm wound up, baby. I'm sorry. My poor wife, she sweats down there when I get going because she knows this goes out on the internet now and it's not just you, but everybody else is watching it and she's afraid that people are going to come after me. So anyhow, government can't do it. Money cannot change things. Positivity cannot help. I love people who send positive thoughts when you're sick in the hospital. I'm sending you my love and positivity. Well, thank you. Why don't you get in your knees and pray for me instead of giving me positive thoughts? The only answer to our problem, folks, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you all amen me. Thank you. But having said that, I want you to listen to this scripture. Oh, that was good. Thank you. I needed that. 
You're just winding me up even more. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring the good news. High point, we need to be like this church in Antioch. We must realize that this call to evangelism is for all believers. It's not just for the pastoral staff. It's for all believers. Each one of us has to get to the point where we are willing to share our faith. But unfortunately, that's just not the way it is. Because for one reason or the other, most Christians shy away from this crucial responsibility. They never reproduce themselves spiritually. We should all have one person in our life that we have produced, reproduced ourselves in by loving them, by leading them to Christ, by discipling them, and seeing that they are a strong believer in Jesus Christ. I want to illustrate this point with a football story. So use your imaginations to follow along if you will. Imagine there's a high school football team and their players average about 120 pounds each. And they're lining up their offense against another team with each player weighing in over 220 pounds. They are a big, athletic, muscular, very dominating football team. Well, the coach of the first team, the little guys, he calls the first play specifically for their fullback named Wilson to take the ball off tackle. But instead, the quarterback fakes a handoff to Wilson and he tries a bootleg around the other end. The play fails and the quarterback is smothered before he even gets to the line of scrimmage. So the coach sends in a player who tells the quarterback once again, give the ball to Wilson. But instead, the coach watches with great frustration as the quarterback gives the ball to the halfback who goes straight into the line and is absolutely creamed at the line of scrimmage. Once again, the coach sends in instructions, says, give the ball to Wilson. But as the ball is snapped, the quarterback hands it off to another player who is flattened by one of the giants on the other team. Well, this time, the coach is literally incensed and he yells from the sideline, hey, I said give the ball to Wilson. And on the field, Wilson steps back from the huddle and he goes back, coach, Wilson doesn't want the ball. That's the picture of the tragedy of the modern day church. Nobody wants the ball. Nobody wants to be a hero. Nobody wants to take the bruising and the beating that sometimes it takes when you step out in faith and do something you've never done before. Christians whom our coach, the Holy Spirit calls to take the gospel to a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, they respond in essence by saying, Wilson doesn't want the evangelistic ball. The world is too big. It's too ugly. It's too angry out there. I don't wanna take the gospel out there, Lord. Please use someone else. Well, the Great Commission will only be accomplished when churches are bold enough to follow this example that the church in Antioch set. And that's to teach its members in such a way that they see evangelism as their personal responsibility. And folks, this is what I've been trying my best to do through this entire series in the book of Acts, in case you haven't noticed. Each of us needs to realize that the ball is in our hand and we need to act. And we need to literally work through whatever it is that holds us back from doing this most important task that God has called us to. Listen, the Bible makes very clear that in the last days, there's gonna be a pouring out of God's spirit upon this world. And I believe we are going to see many more people come into a redemptive relationship 
with Jesus. But what we must remember is his spirit, the Holy Spirit of the living God is active right now in our day, in our time, he is moving. Wouldn't it be awesome for you and I to be a part of a movement that literally ushers in this great move of God's spirit that is being prophesied about in the Bible? Well, we can. We can when we play our part in furthering and following Jesus' instructions to fulfill the Great Commission. Let's do a quick review. Why I admire this church in Antioch. First, I admire their diversity. Secondly, I admire that evangelism to them was primary, primary. And I admire the way that their members took responsibility in fulfilling the Great Commission on a personal level. But, but here's another thing that I admire about this church in Antioch. The spiritual maturity of its members and of its leaders. I particularly see this maturity reflected in two members of their staff, Paul and Barnabas, by who the way were the first missionaries sent out by a church on a purely evangelistic mission. And I refer to these two as being mature because of the way that they responded to hardship. I mean, they didn't seem surprised when things got rough on the missionary road. In fact, they seemed to expect suffering and persecution because they didn't quit when things went south. And believe me when I tell you that many things went south. To begin with, this first missionary trip was a very long journey. Paul covered the equivalent of at least 13,400 miles out in the open sea, through storms, over rough mounted roads, no luxury liners, no planes, no trains, no automobiles, only slow moving, sing, uh, leaky ships, and lots of miles walking on foot in makeshift sandals. It was a physically grueling trip. And many of those miles carried them through unsafe and hostile places, areas that were largely controlled by bandits eagerly awaiting for an unknowing traveler to come and be attacked and robbed. As far as we know, they were not robbed on this first journey, but they did face hardship and they did face adversity one after another. For example, in Paphos, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, who was Barnabas' cousin, who they picked up in Cyprus, they had to confront a demonic magician. He was a tool of the devil, and he advised the Roman proconsul there. From there, they journeyed on to Perga, Persia, excuse me, in Pamphylia. And in that rugged region, it's where many Bible, biblical scholars believe that Paul contracted malaria. It was an illness that plagued him on and off for the rest of his life. So it wasn't easy going. In fact, things got so tough that John Mark deserted them. And he went back to Jerusalem. Like Wilson, he didn't want to carry the ball anymore. Well, from there, they journeyed to Sidian Antioch, where Paul preached in a local synagogue. The message there was well received. He was invited to continue to speak further. In fact, on the next Sabbath, pretty much everybody in that town showed up to hear what he had to say. But some of the Jews got jealous of his speaking to the Gentiles, and they were run out of town. And then Paul and Barnabas arrived in Iconium. Once again, he initially had great success, but then some of the Jews stirred up a type of a lynch mob. And this mob, they planned to stone him, but Paul and Barnabas, they found out about it, and they left town. In Lystra, God used Paul to heal a crippled man, and that drew a great crowd who eagerly listened to everything he had to say. In fact, many of the people there thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. But then some Jews from Iconium who had followed them, they arrived there and they started stirring things up again, so much so that this time Paul was stoned. He was dragged out of town and he was left for dead. But he wasn't. And that didn't stop them. They kept on traveling. They, they kept on sharing their faith. No matter what they came up against, no matter what kind of an opposition that they had encountered, 
And as you read about it all, it seems that this first missionary journey had great success, followed by great suffering. And it was a cycle that was repeated over and over again. In fact, I think the way that Paul knew if he had a good Sunday or not was to count his bandages on Monday morning. They would bind their wounds and they would get back up and they would go back to work. They never quit. I want you to look at Acts 14, verse 21, where they, just, they display great spiritual maturity. It says, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to their faith. And this is where they show their great spiritual maturity when they said to them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, these two had grown up enough spiritually to understand what Jesus met in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. Years later, Paul would write the church in Philippi and in Philippians 1.29 say these words, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. So if, if these guys are any indication of the type of maturity made up of these Christians in Antioch, then I think that we would all have to agree that this was indeed a very spiritually mature church. They were mature enough to know that they could expect hardship in this fallen world if they were going to live their lives for Jesus Christ. They didn't fall for the prosperity gospel that many TV preachers deliver these days as they fly around on their private Lear jets. Yeah, somebody had to say it, and I'm gonna say it. These guys were grown up enough to know that we live for Christ, and when we live for Christ, there will be difficulties. It is inevitable. It is going to happen. Listen, church, if we follow Jesus, if we live like he wants us to live, we will have scars. You can expect them. And this is a lesson that we need to learn and understand in our day and in our time because it seems more and more that immature believers believe that the Christian life is some sort of a spiritual Disneyland experience. And Christians with these unrealistic and I might add unbiblical expectations are gonna be greatly disappointed. Chip Ingram said something very applicable regarding this point. He said the distance between expectation and experience is our level of disappointment and frustration. Many Christians give up or they grow bitter because their experience of the Christian life doesn't match up with their expectations. What I mean by that is they aren't mature enough to know that if we live for Jesus, we can expect some difficulties along the way. Our Lord never promised us an exemption from life's troubles. Being a Christian, please understand this, does not give you a free pass around difficulties and challenges of life. But many people, they just don't understand this. And so when they face hardship or when they, they face heartbreak, they, they respond by either giving up, like John Mark did, or they say, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Come on, I'm out of here. Or they give in, like many Christians do when they say it's too hard, it's too painful to live for Jesus. So instead they do the easy thing and they, they, go, on, they go on with the flow of this fallen world in which we live. But mature believers aren't like that. When those expected tough times come, they don't give up and they don't give in, they go forward, just like Paul and Barnabas did. And in doing so, they experience an abundantly great adventure. It doesn't matter how many hardships you face, when you look back on it all, you only can smile at the adventure that God puts you on because the good so far outweighs the bad, but we as humans tend to reflect on the bad. But as a believer, a mature believer, you remember all the good and you say, Jesus was faithful to me through it all. God uses grown-up believers like this to turn this world upside down. And no lifestyle can even come close to the Christian lifestyle. And nothing 
can be as fulfilling. Amen? Amen. Scott, will you and the worship team please come forward? I hope that you can see why I admire this church in Antioch so much. And perhaps you'll add it to your list of admirable churches in your own mind. But, I said, but as I said earlier, what I really hope is that what I've shared with you this morning would inspire you to want to embrace these same kind of qualities in your own journey. And please understand, we don't do this so that we will be a church that is admired by others. We do this to be a church that pleases our Heavenly Father. We want Him to be proud of the things that, that we do. We want to see God smile when he, when he sees us doing things in His name. And another thing that I want you to be sure to understand is a church is nothing more than its people. It's the truth. So to be an admirable church like the one in Antioch, we must reach out to all people. Red, yellow, black and white, as the song says, they are all precious in his sight. We must do all that we can do to make evangelism primary, our primary purpose. And each one of us must consider fulfilling the Great Commission as our own personal responsibility, our reason for existing on this earth. And we must all strive towards spiritual maturity so that we don't quit when the times get tough. And can I just say this morning how thankful I am that Jesus didn't quit? He could have ended it at any time. He could have called legions of angels to come and free him, just like he did for the disciples, but he didn't. He saw his mission through, and that's why he's number one on my most admired list. And because Jesus didn't quit, we have salvation. We have the very spirit of the living God inhabiting us, the Holy Spirit, who gives us power and wisdom and discernment to do things that we never thought we could ever do. And he offers us not just a purpose for living, but an abundant life that brings fulfillment to us like nothing else. And he has also promised us eternal life in God's presence when our time on this earth is done. And this morning, we are going to remember all of that as we participate in communion together. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward and pass out the communion emblem. I believe that uh, us participating in communion today is particularly appropriate as we've been discussing our part that we play in the Great Commission. See, Jesus was faithful in doing his part, so we must be faithful as well in doing ours. And sometimes I think it's, it's very important that we be reminded of Jesus' part in order for us to kind of keep it all into mental perspective. That's why Jesus told us to always remember what it was that he accomplished on the cross of Calvary. He said, every time you do this, do so in remembrance of me. Because when we do remember, we realize just how small the task is that he has given us when compared to him giving it all. He sacrificed his life, not just his life, but prior to his dying, he experienced great pain, great agony, downright torture for you and I. Therefore, it only seems right that we would be willing to break through our fears of rejection and our concerns over our image or whatever it is that prevents us from sharing Jesus with those around us. We should willingly do it out of gratitude for all that he has done for us. But as you know, 
participating in communion is, is far more than that. And the Bible is very specific in how we should participate. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 29. And it says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The scripture tells us that unless you are willing to examine yourself today before God, before we participate in this communion, unless you are willing to clear up anything that would cause you to participate in communion in an unworthy way, you should not participate in it. So before any of us takes communion together, we must examine our hearts before God. And in light of this very sacred moment, take the time to make sure that we are not carrying around any unconfessed sin. Make sure that we're not harboring hatred and offense and, 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 and unforgiveness against another individual. And if we are, we need to confess that before the Lord today, before we participate in communion. And if you are here today and you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, then communion is not designed for you. Communion is a function of the church for those who are already in a redemptive relationship with Jesus. But having said that, please understand, you can enter into a relationship with him right now. And when you do, then you can participate in communion and not bring judgment upon yourself of being guilty of the blood and the body of the Lord. Because we're gonna have a moment of silent prayer. And all you're gonna hear is the music that you hear now playing softly behind me. And in your own way, and in your own words, simply talk to Jesus. Tell him that you, you believe in him. Repent of your sin. Ask, ask Christ to, to come into your heart. Let him know of your desire to make him Lord over your life. Ask for the Holy Spirit to inhabit you and to strengthen you along your Christian journey. When you do, the Bible says that, that he is faithful to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And that's when you become a Christian. And then you too can participate in this communion time, understanding fully well what Jesus' sacrifice is all about because you've just become a recipient of his amazing grace. Let us all bow our heads for a time of silent prayer and meditation. Father, you have heard our words individually. And most importantly, you have read our hearts. We thank you, Father, for your love, for your forgiveness. Especially thank you for those today who have received the gift of salvation. And we ask that you bless these communion emblems we are about to receive as we remember what you've done for us. And we give you all thanks, honor, and glory, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus was having his last supper with his disciples. It was the last Passover meal that they would engage in together. And in verse 14, it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as you eat of the bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body of the Son of God, and that by his stripes, you and I 
have received healing. You made a bread. Verse 20 says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And as you drink the juice this morning, be reminded of the precious blood of Jesus, the blood that was shed to atone for your and my sin. You may drink of the juice. Please stand with us as we sing. service in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the strong examples that are established for us in the word of God. Examples that, that we need to follow. Examples that show us when we do things your way, there are always results and the results are always good. Father, I pray you'll open our eyes to our need to participate in personal evangelism, one-on-one -on -one to friends, those we're close to, those we have relationships with, to share the good news of Jesus with them. Father, I pray that you would wipe away the fears that we have, the concerns that we have, that we would even take time to practice and say, if this ever happens, what am I going to say? Those are all important steps to feeling like you have some confidence when you're going into that. But God, we know that when you open up a door like that for us, you are always present. You always give us the right things to say. It's happened too many times to too many people for me to know it'd be any differently. Things coming out of our mouths we don't even knew we knew, we don't even know that we knew. But it was things that we had learned, maybe didn't log in our brain, but it logged in our spirit. And you sent it out there to be heard by all. So God, let us walk boldly knowing that we have the spirit of the living God inside of us, guiding and directing us, giving us the things to say and giving us the ability to say them. So I pray, Father, that personal evangelism would become a part of the fiber of High Point Assembly and the people that are a part of it. God, let us to be so crazy as to think that we could literally win this entire city to Jesus. And that's not a crazy thought because mathematically it could happen and it could happen quickly if every one of us were serious about this. So I pray that you would plant that desire in each of our hearts. And God, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, 
the conversations that we have, those conversations would be designed to encourage and build people up and not to tear them down. That we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world. And that brightness would be so evident that people would literally come to us and say, what is it about you that's different? And you open the door for us to share the good news of Jesus with them. Father, give us the courage to walk through those doors when they happen and to boldly proclaim the truth. Father, I also pray that between now and the time that we gather together again, that you would keep us safe from illness, from sickness, from disease. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can come together again as a church family and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And as we go our separate ways, Father, my prayer is that we would go in love. Let that be the trademark of who we are, to love those, even the unlovable, as you've called us to do. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the presence of your spirit in this place and in our hearts. And thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here.